Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from the Bible on how God's creation was for man. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from this week's messages. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you. This is so important. I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to let somebody else do it. I'm going to do it myself. That as God moves toward his special relationship with man, he's getting more and more involved, more committed, more giving himself to this intimate relationship that he wants to have with man. It's an increasing involvement. You know what you see in that? You see the seeds of the gospel. That's not God finishing. In this involvement of the creation of man, God has committed himself too much to fail just because man sins. God has become so involved, as we've seen here in Genesis 1 and 2, in making man and setting up the place to have this intimate relationship that even when man sinned, that he, God would leave heaven for man and die for his sins. Now here's Tom Cantor as we finish our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday Genesis series. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah 1, 18. Now, this part here is where God makes this invitation to man, and he says, he says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Now, man looks at this invitation of God, where he says, Come now and let us reason together, and man says, How can I reason with God? How can I reason with God? What, why would he reason with me? How could God want to reason with me? What's the basis of this? Well, because God is a finisher, and from his involvement in the creation of man, we see his commitment to keep on going on to have this intimate friendship with man. So he makes this invitation, come now, let's reason together. Well, what's the reasoning together that we are to come to the table with God over? The reason is for the reason that man is a sinner. For what reason does God come to the table for man? For the reason that God is a savior. That's the two reasons. So God says, come now, let's reason together. Here's man, he's over on this side. And here's God like this. And so what happens is that Here is man who needs a savior. Here is God who is a savior. And so God calls out to man and he says, come now. In other words, turn. You need a savior. I am a savior. Let's reason together. Let's come together like that. Your reason, you're a sinner. My reason, I'm a savior. We meet together. And he says, and if you do that, then your, your sins will be washed away. You'll, you'll be cleansed from all the defilement. See? That's God's involvement with the creation of man. We see his commitment to go on. And that's why in these chapters here, we see the seeds of the gospel already starting to show itself. God has a very, very special interest in man. Now, he has also a very special interest in the garden. And so that was the because... Those are those remarkable words that you mentioned. You know, it's where it says, and the Lord God himself 
He planted the garden. I don't like to plant things, but God planted things in this garden, and he put man that he formed there. He took a real special interest in this garden. Very special. Why? As if, as if he was saying, this garden has got to be right. This garden has got, is got a very important place. Why is it so important? That's going to be the place God was going to say, where I'm going to meet with man, and I'm going to make sure it's right. It's just got to be the perfect place. You know what that's like? That's like the other meeting place that God has for man later on. You remember the tabernacle? So turn to Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. There we have the famous verse about the purpose of the tabernacle in Exodus 25, 8. Okay? Here it says about the tabernacle. And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell among them, that I may dwell among them. That's the purpose, a place where God would meet with man, a place where God would have friendship with man, a place where God would be with man. That's what he said. That's like the Garden of Eden. That was the place where God was going to meet with man, have friendship with man, be with man. Now, I want you to look at three verses here in, in Exodus 25. Exodus 25 and 20. Okay, start with the first one. Exodus 25, 40. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was shewed thee in the mount. Now, another one, please read uh, Exodus 26, 30. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was shewed thee in the mount. And the last one, Exodus 27, 8. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it was shewed thee in the mount, so shall they make it. All right, three verses. Three, three times the same thing is emphasized. What's emphasized? Don't you deviate, Moses. Don't you deviate. I showed you this pattern in Mount Sinai, and three times he said to Moses, do it the way you saw it. Do it the way you saw it. Do it the way you saw it. This meeting with man is so very, very important to me that the place is so very important. I've designed it. I showed it to you at Mount Sinai. You make it exactly as you saw it as it was showed to you. That's just like God himself going and planting the Garden of Eden. It was a very special place, very important to God. It teaches us something. It, what does it teach us? It teaches us how important it is for us to meet with God. That's what it teaches us. It teaches how important it is for us to meet with God. When do we meet with God? In our quiet time. In our quiet time each day. All this care that God went to, 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 to make the garden just right, to make the tabernacle just, the right, just right. It shows us that God is very, very concerned to have a place, to have a time, that it should be conducive, that it should be right to meeting together with God. That's what he's showing. We were created to have this intimate relationship with God, and God set it up for us. And that time of our quiet time alone with God, our daily quiet time, is so important to God. Now, you may say, oh, no, but you don't know my schedule. You may say that. I have so many things pressing me, pressing on me. I, I, sometimes I just can't. I just can't have it with God. Sometimes I have to miss my time with God because something else comes. You know, God knows the pressures that we have. He knows each one of our pressures that we're under. And he knows that there's going to be a tax from the outside to rob us of that time. He knows that. 
So what's the answer? What's the answer to that when we have the pressure? Okay, I'm glad you asked. All right, turn to Exodus 25. Or is there in Exodus 25? 25 and verse 20. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. Got the picture? Okay. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou, verse 21, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee, and there I will meet with thee, okay, at the mercy seat. There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, where? What does it say? From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. That's a setting. See the setting? The third room, the Holy of Holies, one piece of furniture, the ark. Above the ark, a place called the mercy seat. Over the mercy seat, two cherubim with their wings stretched over each other, looking at each other. See? Now, what are cherubim, anyway? Well, you remember, we, we see them a few times, and w- the most significant time, which we're going to be coming to soon, is when man is expelled from the garden, and then God put cherubim, at the entrance of the garden to guard and keep the garden, right? So what do cherubim do? They protect God's interests. They are fighting swords, flames of fire, so forth, fighting creatures that protect God's interests. They fight for God. He says here that this is the mercy seat. That's where I'm going to meet with you, above the mercy seat. I'll commune with you there. Abide, dwell, hang out. You just take those words, I will meet with thee there, and then he says, from between the two cherubim. Very important he said that. Between the two cherubim. Why? Because they are protecting the place of God's interest. God's interest, the Garden of Eden. God's interest, the tabernacle. God's interest, your quiet time with God. They protect that time, that place. If you decide, if you decide, because it's our decision, we decide to keep to keep as a first priority that nothing is going to disturb that daily quiet time appointment meeting with God, you can count on God's cherubim there, the the fighting warriors of God, to protect the place. It's such a graphic picture, isn't it? Where the wings are spread over it as as if they're saying, someone want to disturb this time between this person and God? You're going to have to deal with me. That, that, that's what the cherubim are really saying. And so he's to protect the time. So whether it's the Garden of Eden, whether it's the mercy seat, whether it's your closet, whether it's your bedroom, whether it's your, your wherever you meet with God, you can accept his invitation, come, and you can count on the cherubim to protect that place. But the question is, do we do it or not? It's our choice. Do we want to go there or not? All right, so this morning... What we've seen is all this care that God took into making the temple of his meeting place with man, the Garden of Eden. Because he wants to have this intimate relationship with God. And this really is setting us up for the next chapter. Why? Well, because if you were the devil, I don't like to say that. I don't even like to say the devil. I'll be the devil's advocate. But anyway, forgive me for saying it. But if you were the devil and you hated God, and you were the eternal enemy of God. And you're sort of sitting on the, the sidelines here, and, and you're watching God become more and more personally 
involved in having this intimate relationship with man. I mean, you see the whole thing with the let there be's and, and, the, and then the going to the consultation and the forming with the, the hands and the planting of the garden. You see God really stepping out of himself here and getting more and more involved. And you want to hurt God. You want to attack God. What are you going to do? You're going to destroy that relationship. You're going to destroy to destroy that relationship because you can see how God put himself into it. You can see how this is really important to God to have this intimate relationship with man. And so therefore, you, if you were the devil, I know you're not the devil, but if you were the devil, then you're going to sit there and you're going to strategize, how can I destroy that relationship? What will it be? Sin will do it. Sin will destroy it. See? And so that sets us up for our next chapter. But praise God, there's better, better chapters coming other than chapter 3. Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God who finishes what you start. Thank you so much, Lord, so becoming so personally involved as we've seen here in these chapters. And we thank you, precious Lord, for that time that even when we sinned, you became so personally involved that you left heaven. You dressed yourself in the frailty of man. You became a man, a perfect man. You endured everything that was put upon you, the mockery, the spitting, the contradiction of sinners, and yet you did all of that till you poured out your precious lifeblood for us. What involvement, Lord. Thank you that you are the same yesterday in the, in the, in, uh, the Garden of Eden. Today, Lord, and you've, you've saved us from our sins and forever when you'll finish finally the new creation and we'll be forever with you in that state of intimate friendship and 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 presence thank you lord for hearing us this morning continue to speak to us in the remainder of this day that we might say it was good for us that we've been in the house of the lord today in jesus name amen tom today you mentioned the verse from isaiah 118 where god asks us to reason together over our sins no less Now, why in the world would God invite us to reason together with him over our sins? Isn't it amazing? It's the verse, Isaiah 118 is a verse we never will get over because God says, come now to the table. He says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And as you said, it's over our sins. And he says, look, I know your sins are as scarlet, but they can be white as wool. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe, the holy God, would call us dirty, sinful, wretched men to come and reason with him. What does it tell us about God? It tells us if God would go so far as to, as to invite foul, defiled, wretched sinners to a table, not so he can dress them out, not so he can scold them, not so that he can read them their their crime sheet, but so that he could say, let's reason together. I will listen, God's saying, I will listen to what you say. You listen to what I say. You bring forth your comments and arguments. I'll bring forth my comments and arguments. That's what it means to reason together. God says that word, together, together. What could there be a together between a holy God and a sinful man? What it shows us in that God is going to this level 
of invitation, this level of overture, this level of extending himself to man, it shows us the truth of 1 Timothy 2.4. God will have all men to be saved. He is commanding all men to get into the lifeboat, obey the gospel, be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. The grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching them to deny ungodliness. Oh, this is a marvelous thing about God. And so he says, therefore, that I want you to come and reason together. If you have a reason to not be saved from your sins, come and tell me about it. Let's discuss it, God's saying. And this also teaches us the truth of 2 Peter 3, 9. Something about God. It says there that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what God is saying here? God is saying, if you will just take me seriously, take my offer seriously. We could turn to God and we say, are you serious? Are you seriously asking me to come and reason together with you? And God would say, yes, I am dead serious. Why? Because I'm not willing that you should perish. And if you've got reasons, I've got an ear to listen. Because God could say, I've done everything for you to keep you out of hell, to bring you into heaven. I love you. I formed you with my hands. And that's the kind of God that we have. It's a marvelous statement when he invites us to come reason together. And that's a wonderful invitation that God doesn't want anyone to perish. Recently, I heard a testimony from an atheist here at our Creation and Earth History Museum where he said that he had accepted Christ at an early age and from that grew up in church and sowed the seed and gave out the gospel and witnessed to other people, saw salvation and changed lives. Yet at the age of 20, shockingly, by his own admission, said that he wasn't saved and became an atheist. He said that he never really had an experience with the Lord, but just had something that was practical about salvation, but not personal. What do you think about a testimony like that, Tom? It's amazing, but it's, it's, it's so possible. You know what I think of is that you could have a bread salesman, and he's traveling down the street, and he's selling bread. He's distributing bread, and he's distributing bread to this house, to this house, and this house, and he's never eaten the bread himself. And as a matter of fact, he dies of starvation. And that's a story here. That's a picture here. Because is the gospel, does the gospel have, is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Yes. Is the gospel effective? Yes. Is it, you know what the gospel is? It's described in Matthew 13, 24. It says, another parable put he forth unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. The seed is good. The gospel that that person was giving out and seeing other people saved was good seed. The fact that he didn't take it himself, the fact that in his heart that seed was not planted has no comment whatsoever on the goodness of the seed. The seed is effective. The tragedy of it all was that he himself did not partake of the seed that he was giving to others. He himself 
remained in a state of death while he gave out life sustenance to others. That's a tragedy. And as he was now, as you were mentioning, as, as an atheist, and he was telling that at the age of 20, that he had said, it doesn't work, and he turned away, all that means is he never came. He never came. The Lord Jesus Christ makes it very, very clear. Come unto me that you may receive life. The King David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. The invitation is there. Taste and see. Can you be a professional teacher of the word of God and not be saved yourself? Yes. Can you be a professional preacher and see people saved and not be saved yourself? Yes. Why? Because the seed is good. The seed is good. But each person's decision on what they do with that seed is each person's decision. Even the sower, even the person who is giving it out. That's why it's so important what Paul says, examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Paul says, do not become another statistic of tragedy, of a person who preached the gospel, who taught the gospel, and yet did not partake of the gospel. The seed is good. Tom, most everyone knows that the Bible talks about our bodies as being the temple of God. Now, today you interestingly talked about the Garden of Eden as being a temple of God as well. What is the commonality between the Garden of Eden and our bodies as temples of God? Well, what we found in, in, in when it, with regard to our bodies is that believers are filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that. He says, uh, if you have not the Spirit, you are none of his. And as we saw the picture in Genesis of God breathed into man his spirit, and man became a living soul. So, uh, therefore, our bodies are the temple of of God. And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 6.16. He says, ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their people, their God, and they shall be my people. So what makes our bodies the temple of the living God? The presence of God. That's what makes our bodies the temple of the living God. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, God was in the Garden of Eden. He was walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. Therefore, what makes the Garden of Eden a temple of God is the presence of God. What makes our body the temple of God? It's the presence of God. That's what is the commonality between the Garden of Eden and and the believer's body. It's the presence of God that makes it the temple of God. The temple that Solomon built was not the temple until God It was inaugurated until God filled the temple with his presence. Same with the tabernacle. And it was said in the past that when God left, Ichabod, meaning the presence of God, left. Now, what's so important to realize is we ask ourselves a question, okay, if my body is the temple of the Holy of the Holy Spirit, my body is the temple of the Spirit of Christ, my body is the temple of God because of the presence of God inside. 
how should how should I live? What difference should that make with me and my body? It's very interesting because in Matthew twenty one thirteen, the Lord Jesus Christ said, and he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Therefore, we should look at our bodies and realize as believers The presence of God is inside, therefore I am the temple of God. And what activity should be characteristic of the temple of God? It should be a house of prayer. That's why Paul said, pray without ceasing. When you see needs, pray. When you see good things, pray and praise God. When you see, when you're thinking and meditating on the Word of God, Pray and ask God to give you insight, to give you words from his word. That's how we become more and more the temple of God or the house of prayer that we should be as the temple of God. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again tomorrow as Tom Cantor teaches us from his Thursday, Friday message series from Exodus. Now, are you interested in learning more about the Jewish Messiah? Tom Cantor has compiled a book of 194 prophecy and fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got over 80 pages of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. If you'd like to obtain a copy of this booklet, please call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Do you also have a Jewish friend you'd like to reach with the gospel? Call us today at 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. You can also go to friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org to learn more about Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries. Join us again tomorrow as we study Exodus.